The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may go ahead and have a seat. As you've heard, it is the second to last Sunday in the season of Epiphany, the season of Christ's light and glory. And as the second to last Sunday in Epiphany, today is World Mission Sunday, a Sunday in which Anglican churches and others emphasize the way the light of Christ is shining forth across the globe among nations. There is this propulsive sense of energy as we hear and we learn of the explosive growth of the church worldwide. It is estimated by 2025 that two-thirds of Christians will live in Asia, Africa, Oceania, the Middle East, the Caribbean, and Latin America. There is this tremendous sense of energy as we have a sense of the church going among the nations, the gospel spreading out, a sense of energy and excitement. Perhaps also, however, a sense of cognitive dissonance. Why not here? A few years ago, my wife said to me, it doesn't feel like people come to know Jesus anymore. Both anecdotally and statistically, the facts support that intuition. The percentage of Americans, those living in the West, who identify as Christian is decreasing. Many of us have friends and family members who once did identify as followers of Jesus, but do no longer. All of us, I suspect, have acquaintances or colleagues who are politely indifferent, to whom any news of Jesus seems stale and irrelevant. On a day like today, we are reminded of the ways God is powerfully on the move globally. And this gap emerges between that reality and our own experience. A gap between the realities we hear about, the the truths we proclaim and sing about each week, in the experience of our own lives, perhaps even affecting our sense of the efficacy, the, the power of the gospel. I'd like to wrestle with that gap a little bit this morning through a series of questions related to our reading from Matthew. Jesus there refers to this harvest, but what is the nature of the harvest that Jesus describes? A series of questions, why is there a harvest? What is the goal, the completion of this harvest? And lastly, how is this harvest brought to its end? First, why is there a harvest? Matthew chapter 9 marks one of these moments in the gospel, very intriguing, draw us in, where there's this clear description of Jesus' interior life, a description of what he's thinking and feeling in response to what he sees. Verse 35 gives this general description of Jesus' activity, Jesus' life, his work in the world. He's teaching, he's preaching, he's healing. That's a repetition of uh, of how Jesus' life was described in Matthew chapter 4. And this work among the villages, the towns in Galilee, the region he's in, it involves this encounter with the crowds. The presence of the crowds is a particular feature through the Gospels. These are people who are drawn to Jesus, to the the commotion around him, but they're not necessarily his followers, his disciples. They're the viewers. They're the, the people who like but don't follow, maybe, on social media. And they can be linked with this term used in first century Israel, people of the land. That is, salt of the earth. 
everyday, unaffiliated, unremarkable people. Some of you may have seen this. On 183, there's a bar that I drive by. I've never been in there. I'm kind of intrigued to go in. It's called the Silver Medal. And the marquee in the Silver Medal stands out. It says, where everyone's almost a winner. And I think that's the crowd, like that's the people of the land, the people who go to that bar, who are just trying to make it through. That is who Jesus encounters. That's who Jesus meets as he's preaching, teaching, and healing. And his response to this motley crew is one of compassion, Matthew says, is one of fellow feeling, we might say, of suffering with. The word translated compassion, it refers to your bowels. In his guts, Jesus feels something for these people. And at one level, that is why there is mission. Around the world and here in the city of Austin. Because Jesus feels something for the people of this city, for the people of the world. He, as the Son of God, truly God, truly human, has fellow feeling for your neighbors, for your colleagues, your family and friends, where they're at. He has compassion for those across the globe whom you and I will never meet. The motivating factor behind mission is the compassion of Jesus. Frederick Dale Bruner, in his remarkable commentary on this portion of the Gospel of Matthew, titled The Christ Book, puts it this way. Because Jesus suffers with people, because he has compassion, he forms a mission to them. Mission is not motivated by Jesus' disgust for people because they are such sinners, nor even by an imperial sense that he has a right to people, which properly understood he has. Mission, rather, is motivated by the more appealing fact of Jesus' compassion for hapless people. There is mission because of Jesus' compassion. And this is not like a fresh idea of Jesus in this moment. We see this in our reading from Isaiah 49. At the very heart of God's intention for his creation is this word going out. It's too small a thing for this only to be about restoring, gathering the people of Israel. I'll make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. The same generosity, the same compassion we see in Jesus is there, present in Israel's God throughout the story of Scripture. Jesus is not this anomaly, this novel development. There is no division in the heart of God Among the persons of the Trinity, God is moved with compassion for you, for your neighbors, your colleagues, your friends, and family, by God's fellow feeling for his creation. There is mission. I do wonder if any reluctance we have toward mission, toward evangelism, begins here, rooted in this unarticulated but no less real sense diminished sense of God's compassion. In my own life, the repeated spiritual battle seems to be to retain the awareness, the knowledge that God is good toward me, that he has compassion for me. Perhaps you can identify. 
And I think our forgetfulness of the sheer goodness of God, his compassion, the fact that we cannot hold to that truth so easily is demotivating when it comes to carrying that truth forward for others. If I'm right, then the initial task of mission is not to get out there and work harder, but is to ask God, ask the Holy Spirit in his mercy for a renewal in our hearts and minds, a reminder of his compassion toward us. That is the beginnings of mission, that the people of God be stirred up with a fresh awareness, a deeper apprehension of what Jesus feels for us, for the world around us. Ruth Padilla de Borist paraphrases Jesus this way. She says, I am serious about this world. I love this world. I'm willing to suffer and die for this world. That's the root of mission. Now, some of you keen listeners among us will have recognized, have heard that something has shifted in my answer to this question, why is there a harvest? We've been talking about mission, and that's related to the harvest, but it's not quite the same thing. And there is this relationship between Jesus' compassion and the reality of a harvest. Through Jesus, God is acting in the world, right? He's preaching, teaching, healing. He's stirring things up that draws the crowd, harassed and helpless. And then the presence of the crowd engenders this further response of Jesus, compassion. That motivates sustained mission. But the reality of the harvest, the existence of the harvest, is rooted in the fact that the crowds, that the people, are harassed and helpless. They're hapless, as Bruner said. You see it, the, the reality of the harvest is connected to the need and pain of the world. That is the harvest. That is the field, the Lord says, is mine. And it's plentiful. It's that pain, it's that need that we are all aware of, complex, multifaceted, but ever-present. It's that need, it's that pain in its totality that Jesus desires to heal, to bring restoration. What is the nature of the need that Jesus sees? The, the words translated harassed and helpless carry with them this sense of people having lost heart, lacking in vision and direction. They don't know where to go, even of people collapsed in on themselves, fainting. The image of sheep without a shepherd appears throughout the Old Testament. It's most prominent in Ezekiel 34, where it describes how people are betrayed, abandoned by their leaders, by those who have been put in place to care for them, who do not, in fact, have their best interests in heart. And so people are left vulnerable, alone, languishing, lost, and lonely. In the mornings when I drive my kids to school, we've been listening to Tom Petty, and my favorite song by Tom Petty is Learning to Fly. And it's kind of an upbeat song. Yes, and all God's people said amen. Uh, it's kind of this upbeat song, but there's this verse where he sings, now some say life will beat you down, will break your heart and steal your crown. And my kids are like singing along and I'm like crying in the front seat <laughs> because that is what we're talking about. That is the experience of need and pain that life is hard and long and difficult and we're alone. 
That is the reality among people. That is the harvest that Jesus identifies and he names it. It's plentiful. In our day, he might have pointed to the collapse of trust that people have in institutions and leaders. He might point to the epidemic of loneliness that characterizes our hyper-connected society. He might point to the reality that in every station of life, there are people asking, is life worth living? People who do not know that there is one who is for them, who will not forsake or abandon them, who do not know that there is a shepherd who is faithful and good, able to save and guide us into life. Your neighbors, your friends may not be open in your estimation to Jesus' talk, but they are, I guarantee you, at some level, surely asking these questions of identity, intimacy, security, and trust. Who am I? Am I alone? Is there anyone able to help? To whom can I entrust myself? That is the harvest to which Jesus points his church, to which he points you and I. Why is there a harvest that is plentiful? Because people are in need and hurting, and Jesus cares about that. So that's the first question. The second question is, what is the end, the conclusion of this harvest? What does it mean for the harvest to be brought in? Our reading from Isaiah 49 has this emphasis upon the return of the people of Israel, the return or regathering of the tribes of Jacob. Yet there is also this global element. The anointed servant of the Lord cries out to the distant nations. For many of us, when we think about mission or evangelism, our minds immediately turn to examples of coercion, the legacy of colonialism, to a paternalistic impulse at best, if not an imperialistic one. Get out there, conquer and win, defeat them for our side. The reality of those impulses and aspirations in Christian history is undeniable and tragic. It is to be repented of. But those impulses are not connected to Jesus' words regarding the harvest. The language utilized in our readings this morning is not the language of invasion, imposition, or colonization. But it's the language of care and compassion, of return and restoration. Return and restoration for Israel, but also for the nations. The language of return, of coming back, applies both to the people of Israel and to these distant lands. When the name of Jesus is brought to distant lands, when news of the goodness and faithfulness of God is brought to those who do not know him, what is being extended is an invitation to return, to in some way recognize the one whom we all know. It is to be brought into loving alignment with the one in whom we and all people live and move and have our being. I've used this illustration before, but I think it's just perfect, and so I'll use it again. There's theologian Jeremy Begbie has applied some lessons from music, from sound, to theology to help illustrate our understanding of things. And he talks about the, a three-note chord as an illustration of the Trinity. He uses it as an example of the way we might conceive of three distinct things interpenetrating, combined, unified. It's kind of cool, limited as every illustration of the Trinity is. 
But where I think this illustration gains real power is when he talks about there's that three-note chord on a piano, and then he describes conversion, evangelism, mission, as the other notes being brought into resonance with that three-chord note. Distinct, each bringing their own sound, but joining in harmony with God and with the whole of creation to make something beautiful, make something more than we could of ourselves, to become what we were made to be. I think we see this idea most clearly this morning in our scripture in the psalm we prayed. Let the nations rejoice and be glad, for you shall judge the peoples righteously and govern the nations upon earth. The language of governing there is shepherding language, guiding, leading, nurturing. And the gospel includes the good news of this righteous and good shepherd for whom all peoples were made and for whom all people long. And the result we see in Psalm 67 of people coming to know him, to know of his presence, coming to praise him in verse 5, is there in verse 6. The result is the flourishing of God's creation. As the nations of the earth are brought into life-giving alignment with the one who is righteous, who's compassionate, who's able to lead us in justice and peace, who is wholly good, things come alive. I think just as there is a reminder for us today of Jesus' compassion, so too there may be a reminder of his sufficiency, his capacity to respond to all the needs of the world, to meet the needs of the nations, and to cause creation to come alive. This is what Jesus is on about when he gives his followers the Great Commission. Go make disciples. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded. Not because our tribe needs to win, but because all authority has been given to me, who's gentle and lowly of heart, who's faithful and compassionate. And people need to know that there's one who is for them, who is just, who's mighty to save, that they and all of creation might come alive. That is the end of the harvest. That is the conclusion of it being brought in. It's this vision of God's restored and renewed heavens and earth of people experiencing the fullness of God's blessing in the person of Jesus now and into eternity. How? How might this come to be? Justo Gonzalez has titled his commentary on the book of Acts, The Gospel of the Holy Spirit. Acts is the story of the early church's mission. Its full title is The Acts of the Apostles. But Gonzalez's title gets at something true, something that we may be tempted to forget, that the work is the Spirit's, the bringing in of the harvest, the meeting of the needs of the world, truly and with power, is the work of God. This is why Jesus' exhortation to his disciples, to us, recognizing the fullness of the harvest, is to ask, is to pray. He doesn't say, get your best minds on the problem and figure it out. No, he first says, pray that God would send out workers. The priority of prayer, I think, is especially essential for people like us, people of some means in the world, some capability, so easily tempted to think that we have mastery, that the challenge of making Jesus known is simply a matter of perfecting our methods and making no false moves. But the task is to pray. Pray for workers, Jesus says, for God to send out people in the harvest of a hurting and harassed world 
to help and bless, to preach, teach, and heal in the name of Jesus. Is it your experience that the harvest does not seem plentiful? That people are not coming to know Jesus? Let us pray. Pray for God to send workers, trusting that the field is ripe and that it is God's work over which he has mastery. And if you read on in the Gospels, you'll see that very soon things start to happen. The very next verses in Matthew 10 sees the disciples who have just been exhorted to pray, given authority, and sent out to do exactly what Jesus has been doing. Up until this point, Jesus' comment about the workers being few has been a gross understatement. It's just him. He is the only worker. <laughs> like, maybe John the Baptist. But now, as they pray, the disciples are made co-laborers in this same work. By their prayers, the disciples have become people the Spirit can use, people the world needs. But this is humble language, the language of workers among the villages, not the great cities, of work done humbly and among the humble, among those who know themselves to be in need. Part of the gap in our experience, part of the cognitive dissonance we have might be that we're not looking among the peoples where the Spirit is moving here in North America. It's a call to the humble and to go humbly, to go in such a way that acknowledges our own need of God's faithfulness and goodness. Jesus does not pray, does not say, pray for the experts, the thought leaders to be sent out. Pray for the brilliant and sophisticated. He says, pray for workers and sends out the disciples themselves, ragtag and unlearned. And in the language of Isaiah 49, the workers are those in whom the splendor of God is on display, in whose lives the faithfulness, the goodness of God is being made known. So often this takes place in the form of our weakness through our suffering and our difficulty, our halting obedience. The glory, the splendor of God is known, who are witnesses in the language of Acts, pointing to the grace and goodness of Jesus and not their own competency. It's through such people that the harvest is being brought in. How might this same trajectory from prayer to empowered workers unfold among us? I wonder. In what ways might we ourselves be empowered to go forward blessing others in the name of Jesus? Might we see people among us, our own children, raised up to serve cross-culturally elsewhere or here in Austin? Might we know ourselves to have authority in our places of work and study, authority to serve, to preach, teach, and heal humbly? Oh Lord, display your splendor in our lives, we pray. Make known the sufficiency of Jesus for every human need. Renew in us an awareness of your compassion. Bear fruit in our weakness and struggle. Come, Holy Spirit, hear our prayer. It's my sense that the word of the Lord for us today is in the language of the quote on the front of your bulletin, to keep looking. To put on the eyes of faith and keep looking with hope and expectation to keep looking upon the world around us for signs of the harvest that Jesus declares is there, 
for signs of the Spirit's activity among the needs, the hurts of our neighbors, friends, and family. To look around us for evidence of the harvest, people hungry for faithfulness and care, eager to be brought into alignment, and to look in prayer for the Spirit to raise up workers. To look at our own lives with the expectation that God's splendor will be on display as we go forward humbly to work and serve in the name of Jesus. And lastly, the exhortation is, in the midst of the brokenness, the plentiful pain, the overwhelmingly complex needs of the world, to keep looking to Jesus as the one who is sufficient, able to save, who's compassionate, marked by fellow feeling, and who is the faithful and good shepherd we and the whole world need. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let me pray for us. Gracious and almighty God, as we hear this word from the Gospel of Matthew, as we hear these words from Isaiah and Acts and Psalms, would you, by your Holy Spirit, cause these words to penetrate our hearts? And would you, by the power of your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, give us fresh vision, O oh God, to look upon our city, where we live, where we work, where we study, to look upon your, the world with the, the lens that Jesus gives us here, a harvest of people hungry and hurting, of people in need of what only you can provide. And we pray, Lord, would you send workers would you raise up workers, O oh God, to go to preach, to teach, to heal humbly in your name, O oh Lord? And by your mercy, by your Holy Spirit, would that happen among us? And Lord, for those of us here who are in need of a, a fresh encounter, a fresh reminder of your sufficiency and your compassion, would you now, in the quiet in the gentle voice of your Holy Spirit, confirm in us the truths of your love for us and your ability to save. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen.